welcome to Brain VR podcast. We are sitting here with Professor, professor Michael Levin, uh, a distinguished uh, professor in the biology department at Tufts and serves as a director of the Allen Discovery Center at Tufts as well, and the Tufts Center for Regenerative and Developmental Biology. Uh, your group focuses on understanding the biophysics, uh, biophysical mechanism that implement decision-making during complex pattern regulation and harnessing the endogenous bioelectric dynamics towards rational control of growth and form. Uh, and you also did your postdoctoral training at Harvard Medical School, where you began to uncover a new bioelectrical language by which cells coordinate their activity during embryogenesis. Uh, and your, you also had independent laboratory uh, at Foresight Institute and now you are at Tufts University and you are developing a new molecular genetic and conceptual tools to probe large-scale information processing in regeneration, embryogenesis and cancer suppression. Uh, does that sound right? Did I miss something which is important or...? Is that okay? Oh, uh, yeah, it sounds it sounds right. Um, I also have an appointment at the Visa Institute at Harvard. Uh, but other than that, I think we got everything. All right, cool. So we do our interviews uh, maybe a little bit differently because we are really interested in people that we talk to. So we love your work. We love the, what you do and what you've discovered. It's it's just so fascinating. But we would like to kind of dig uh, a little bit into your kind of a story. Like what were the, you, don't, you know, the moments that decided, um, the most important moments in your life that decided the path that you're going to take, the path that got you right where you are right now, studying what you study. Because I, th I think you were also doing... Uh, before some computational, basically like helping science with uh, comp computational stuff uh, and stuff like that. So could you maybe, uh, you know, add a little bit of a story behind uh, what you do and behind your path? Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, I suppose uh, we could go uh, to the kind of to the beginning when I was uh, when I was a little kid uh, and I was born in Moscow, Russia. So I lived uh, I lived there when I was when I was little and uh, I had asthma. And uh, what happens with asthma, of course, is that your airway closes up. And so you get nervous, which makes your airway close up more, which makes you more nervous. And so it's this kind of like feedback loop. So um, at the time, we didn't have access to really um, medication, right? Proper medication for, for asthma. And so uh, as a solution, what my uh, father used to do is <clears throat> you would take the... Um, We had this TV set, which was this giant, like wooden thing with a tiny little screen in the front, right? I don't know if you can even imagine such a such a thing, uh, but um, but you know, and inside of of so so he would turn it around and he would take off the back, yeah, take off the back panel, and you could see all the vacuum tubes. It had these glowing, you know, vacuum tubes and all the electronics and all the parts, and and uh, and, the, and the, you know, the goal was to was to of course distract, right? So to to distract me so that I would forget about the you know the breathing and so on, and so so that worked, but. You know, kind of amazing that that was for me, that was really a very formative moment because I remember staring at this stuff and thinking, it's kind of incredible that somebody knew how to put all that stuff in exactly the right way to make the cartoons, you know, come out the front of the of the set, right? So somebody is who clearly it wasn't random, clearly somebody knew how to do it. Uh, apparently you can teach people to do it because, you know, I said, well, where does this come from, right? So in the factory, they they sort of do it, okay. So, so that was amazing. And, and I, right from the beginning, I kind of decided that, okay, that's, that's what I want to be. I want to be the guy that knows how to put these things together to make a particular thing come up. So, so for, for years uh, after that, I was interested in, in, in engineering and, and, and technology and, and things like this. But, uh, 
<clears throat> at the you know when I, when I got a little bit older, I had a I had a friend who uh, was really into bugs and insects, uh, and so we would go outside and we would. He was a little bit older, but we would go and play, and he would show me all the different you know caterpillars and beetles and all this stuff. And I remember thinking that well, this is very interesting because clearly they are made of parts too. They're different parts than what the TV is made of, and they do way more stuff. And they appear, they're pretty different. They, they have preferences and they, you know, they have behaviors and it's clear they like some things and don't like some things and so on. And I said, well, how does that work? And, and where did those parts come from? And who put those parts together, right? So, so it's a really kind of a, you know, was kind of a construct. And I, I spent a lot of time and then, and then you know, what's inside of us? Like we probably have parts too and, um, and uh, things like that. And so when I was, uh, when I went to college, well, pr prior to that, I was, uh, when, when computers first, first showed up and this was like, uh, we, we came to America in 78. So early eighties, you know, the computers started to show up. I got, I was able to, I was able to get access to some very simple, you know, simple computer stuff. And so I was really interested in programming and, and, and really AI, right. The idea that, that could we, could we develop, uh, could we develop new minds that we built ourselves, right. And so, so I went to I went to college for for I majored in computer science. Um, was interested in um, uh, artificial intelligence and things like that. But basically, um, kind of uh, pretty soon, it became really clear that uh, we would have that that, that uh, it wasn't going to be good enough just to try to do computer science and and to 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 do um, on its own because because we really didn't know what we were doing. It was really very unclear where our minds come from, except that in biology you see this every day. So. We all start life as a single cell. You start life as an egg cell, and then eventually this little piece of chemistry and physics becomes a mind in some fashion, right? During development. So, so, so that was it. I thought, I thought, okay, I have to, I have to also do developmental biology, and so, so I got a um, right around the same time I got a second uh, bachelor's degree in 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 biology, and that's you know that's kind of and, and then I went to grad school, and so that's that's kind of my my story. Well, uh, uh, yeah, this is uh, how minds emerge from chemistry and physics this, and and even just the whole organism how does it even happen like it's just one of the most fascinating questions that as humans we can have i think so um i i, I just i would like to go into this basically into this process and go maybe step by step into how our minds maybe let's go there maybe how our minds emerge from uh physics and and chemistry but f we have to start at the level maybe of genes at this of the of the single cells of the developmental biology that you that you do so could you kind of explain to us and our listeners how does it even happen that we have some information maybe you know genetic information how does it happen that from genes there comes this whole thing that's us that's any organism basically and maybe we have some you know ideas that you know they are encoded uh i don't know uh, like plants basically for our limbs and where the head is should be and stuff like that but maybe there's a little bit uh, different story there because uh that's fairly simplistic i think and we are both biologists as well so we know it's like this kind of weird you know mechanism that's not really easily graspable but i think you have some really nice metaphors and uh, and you explain it in a really nice way so could you maybe uh, explain to us how how does that even how does it even happen how is that possible sure um i'll, I'll give you my thoughts on it obviously this is very much an open you know an open area of, of investigation and and i should point out that 
my view on it is probably, let's say, not not in, in every way the mainstream view. So I'm going to tell you what I think, and then you can get the kind of different perspectives from 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 others. And it, it's a pretty different perspective than you would get from a standard, uh, let's say, developmental biology course or something like that. Um, the first thing, the first thing I, I would point out is that in placing the emphasis on genes is already quite a commitment and we need to back up for a minute because especially now, I mean, it, it, this was always problematic, but especially now we can read genomes, right? And we know what's in the genome. And when you read the genome, of course, you don't see anything like what is your symmetry type? How, what's the size of this organism? How many eyes it have? It has, does it have eyes? How many limbs? You don't see any of that in, in the genome. Um, what you see is uh, you see protein sequences. And so, so what's in the genome is the, is the description of the micro level hardware that every cell is going to have. So genomes are very much a description of the hardware. Now we've known for, uh, for decades now that uh, certain kinds of devices, and I'm going to argue that biology is exactly for, for many reasons is exactly such a, such a device. Uh, yes, there's a hardware layer and you can, can manipulate it or try to understand it at the hardware level layer, but there's um, a much, much, um, more interesting and possibly a more important uh, software layer to go along with it. And we know this right away, you know, you know right away that uh, we, we have something, something missing here today because despite all of the amazing progress in molecular biology and genetics and, and all of these things, they're very basic questions. Like for example, in my lab, we make something called a frogolotl. What's a frogolotl? Well, it's a, a half of frog embryo cells, half axolotl cells. Okay, now uh, baby axolotls have legs, frog larvae or tadpoles don't have legs. So if I make a frogolotl and I say to you, um, well, here's your, here's a frog genome. Okay. Here's a Xenopus genome. Here's a axolotl genome. So you have both genomes. Now I want you to tell me our frogolotl is going to have legs or not. And now we have a big problem. We have no idea if frogolotls ahead of time are going to have legs. We, we don't have any way of making that, making that prediction because what, what is, what, because the outcome here is uh, the process of, uh, of decision-making by cells that are going to determine some kind of morphology. And we get so used to, we get so comfortable with, with reliable development, the idea that, okay, frog eggs make frogs and acorns make oak trees, that we think, well, of course, that's how it has to be. But actually, uh, there's an, and we can, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about it today, there's incredible plasticity in that process. So something really important is the idea that the genome encodes for the hardware of the cells, right? The selection, meaning meaning that part of evolution that selects uh, for, for specific traits, that acts on the phenotype, that acts on the final outcome, so on the anatomy and on the behavior. But the genome, but the mapping between the genotype and the phenotype is really complicated. It's not directly straightforward, right? Except for very, you know, there's, there's um, enzymes and some things like that that are directly sort of encoded by, by the genes, but mostly it's not like that. And that internal process, that software, that developmental physiology, that's actually the software that runs the whole thing, is to my mind, uh, one of the most important aspects of all of this, because it has some incredibly interesting properties. It has some degree of intelligence in the sense of novel problem-solving ability in new circumstances. And that has huge implications for biomedicine, for, uh, for understanding evolution, for um, uh, b basic, basic developmental biology. That, that, that layer, that, 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 that the, the, the interactions there are uh, really profound. There's a lot of work that's being done by that layer. And in addition to that, um, I, I want to uh, pretty early in the discussion pull out something else. 
when when we when we try to explain things, so we see something. Let's say this is here's a creature, and it has uh, a particular uh, style of, uh, of 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 hand, or it has some eyes, or whatever it is, and we want to explain this. So you can ask yourself, well, well, where 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 does that come from, right? Well, how how do we explain it? And I, and I want to start off by by thinking early on about what it means to explain certain kinds of features. Like, what does that mean? How what does it mean to explain where something comes from? Imagine that um, I'll give you I'll give you two simple examples, and then you'll see why it matters to developmental biology. Um, you may have seen this thing. It's called a Galton board. So it's a piece of wood like this. You bang a bunch of nails into it, just sort of space regular, and then you take a bag of marbles and you dump it into the top of the board. What happens? Boom, 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 boom. They, you know, they sort of go around. And in the end, if you have enough marbles, what do they do? They land in this beautiful bell curve at the bottom, right? You get then it's a tip of, you know, you can buy this toy on Amazon, whatever. So you get this, you get this toy. So you could ask yourself, okay, uh, where does this beautiful bell curve shape come from? Is it in the wood? Mm, no. Is it in the description of the nails? No. Is it in the positioning of the nails? No. Is it in the marbles? No. Where does it come from? Right. So, so that's so that's one simple example. Another example is. If you if you discover a transistor, let's say you discover how to make a transistor, and for example, bi biological ion channels are a kind of transistor because they can be voltage gated, right? So they're voltage gated current conductances. So they're basically transistors. If you figure out how to make a transistor, you could connect a few of those transistors into a logic gate. So it could be AND or those kinds of logic gates, right? Those logic gates come with a truth table that tells you how it works. Yeah, for example, the AND, yeah. And with those truth tables, uh, especially if you have a not and an AND gate, you can make all kinds of all kinds of things. Now, you can ask yourself, where did that truth table come from? I didn't. I didn't have to evolve a truth table. What I evolved is a is a, is a transistor. It's a piece of uh, it's a it's a piece of physics. But the truth table came for free. Once once you have certain things, so where do those things come from? So so sometimes they come from specific selection forces. Other times they're a kind of free lunch in a certain sense, and there are many types of these. You know, in geometry, in in basic, I mean, mathematicians have been talking about this for a long time, right? The truths of of number theory or of prime number distributions, all these kinds of things. They you don't have to evolve them; they're just sort of given to you for free if you have the right kind of physical machine that to 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 take advantage of them. So there are laws of of biomechanics, about bioelectrics, or computation, and many things. And so what evolution might do so is 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 find a simple machine that can harness all this stuff. And so so I so I think it's important to understand that when we ask where does it come from, there's the part that is genetic, but there's also that's the part that's generic. And people like Stuart Stuart Newman or Stu Kaufman have been talking about this for 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 many years. It's sort of there are generic laws of the universe that that biology can harness that are not specifically in the genes any more than that nice bell curve is in the description of the wood and the nails. Speaking of intelligence and uh, this th these generic laws, how do the cells and cell groups decide what to make and uh, when the process is finished? Yeah, that's 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 very important. <clears throat> so so there's two ways to to think about that question. One way is how does the decision making work in general? So 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 how do we scale up? So so the the, the amazing thing about um, biology is that uh, e evolution, unlike unlike a lot of our engineering, you know, up until recently when we were engineering, we were working with passive materials. So you know, wood, metal, that kind of stuff. And the thing about passive materials is that you as the engineer are responsible for all the outcomes. The material basically doesn't do anything except keep its shape usually, and then you are responsible for placing it however it goes. Evolution can't do that because evolution is working with an agential material. The cells themselves have abilities, they have 
uh, uh, preferences, they have behavioral repertoires. So from that perspective, evolution, evolution is working with a material that already has all these activities. And so what you're really looking at is behavior shaping. It's a lot more like behavior shaping where, where what you want is for cells to give other cells signals so that they do specific things. And I, I can give you some, some cool examples of that. But anyway, so, so what we have to understand is how this process of uh, competent subunits works together to, uh, to, to pursue bigger goals. Right now, individual cells are very good at pursuing cell level goals. What's a cell level goal? pH, hunger level, right? So, so some sort of metabolic states, all kinds of like local little little things. But uh, multicellular collectives, let's say um, limbs, you know, cells of limbs and those kind of things, they can uh, work towards much larger goals. So, for example, in a salamander. And they work together to build a limb. If you cut off some of the fingers or the whole wrist or the hand, they will rebuild exactly what goes there, right? They will rebuild the exact limb and then they stop when they're done. So you can see this kind of goal-directed activity where the system will exert energy to minimize the error between whatever is happening now versus what it wants to have happen. So, so of course, uh, there's many things not understood about this. We are very actively um, studying this process. But one thing that we can now see is that the process of connecting the connecting cells into specifically electrical networks, okay, allows them to do a very interesting kind of scaling, and it's it's a little bit like uh, the uh, the notion of artificial networks in computer science, where you can you can connect these little subunits. The subunits by themselves don't do terribly much, although cells, of course, do. But you can connect them in a particular way that enables the whole thing to have bigger computational properties. And I can give you, I can, I'll, I'll, I'll give you just a very, very simple example of, of how it works. Imagine, um, imagine two cells that are signaling to each other in the conventional way, which means one cell secretes some kind of uh, signaling molecule that floats around and, and it binds the next cell. And okay, that's a signal. So the thing with that kind of signaling is that the receiver is very clear that this signal came from outside. And once you get a signal from outside, you can ignore it. You can do something about it, whatever. You have many options. Now imagine evolution invented uh, this amazing thing called a gap junction. A gap junction is this, these, these proteins that allow cells to stick together and pass um, small molecules directly between the intercellular milieu from one end to the other. The amazing thing about the gap junction is, and I'm simplifying this greatly, but, but the interesting piece of this is that when something happens to cell A, let's say, let's say it got injured, it got poked or something, and, and, and there's a calcium spike that, that went on, that calcium spike or whatever memory molecule will propagate through the gap junction into the other cell. And what I what I what I say about the gap junctions is that they have this property of wiping identity, meaning that when that signal propagates, this cell cannot tell that that signal came from outside because you because because its calcium spike looks exactly like this other calcium spike. Once there is a signal, a physiological signal of something, now you don't know that it came from from the outside. Right. So what this means is that there's a kind of mind meld, almost a mental connection between these two cells where memories lose identity. They lose ownership. So from the perspective of this single cell, that's a that that molecule is a false memory because it, this cell never got poked. But from the perspective of the collective, that's uh, absolutely a true memory because the collective did get poked. And so 
what happens is when cells get merged into these tight electrical networks, they start to, f the, the, the identity, the separated identity starts to fuzz, meaning that it's, it's, they're, they're having a hard time keeping their, their knowledge separate. And when, when, when you can't, if, if, if you and I can't keep our memories separate, then in an important sense, we become one larger unit, right? Because that, that distinction starts to break down. So when that distinction breaks down and cells connect into larger electrical networks, the, the three things happen, those three things, let's go back to the homeostasis, right? If you're a single cell and you're trying to keep homeostasis, you have to do three things. You have to be able to measure what's going on now. What is my pH now? Then you have to uh, remember what the correct one is. What's my correct pH range? And then third, you have to take action to bring the current pH to closer to the correct pH, right? Maybe you dump acid or something like that. Imagine what happens to those three things when cells connect, connect into large electrical networks or tissues. When you take a measurement, because you're gap junctionally connected, you, don't, you no longer just measure your own local environment because you're all connected. You measure something very large. So you're taking non-local measurements, right? Every cell knows what's going on everywhere else because your measurement is now a function of a much larger area. When you try to remember what is the right set point, your computational capacity is now huge. Whereas before you might only be able to remember a few very small things. Well, now you're a big network. Now you might be able to remember all kinds of things, right? And your action, whereas before you were a single cell able to take local actions, as a collective, you might do all kinds of interesting things. You might bend, you might deform like a sheet, you could do all sorts of things, but they're large things. So everything scales up, right? The other interesting thing that happens here is that uh, you, you scale, uh, you 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 scale stress, and what I mean by that, let's just think about this for a second. Why, when you're when you take a measurement and it's not correct, why do you take any action to fix it? The way biology tends to handle it is by stress. So stress is proportional to that delta between the current state and the and the preferred state. And and what it does is try to minimize stress. As long as that stress is high, I'm going to take action. And when the stress goes low enough, then I can relax. Everything's cool, right? That's something like that. So what you can do is, so just imagine if you're a single cell, uh, by, prop by, by, by releasing your stress molecules and propagating them out to your neighbors, you make your problem becomes their problem. Whereas before, if you were stressed out, let's say you're a cell that is sitting in some other cells and you're in the wrong location, you need to be up here, but you're down here and you have some amount of stress over that. If, if you just keep your stress, you will stay there and no one will get out of your way and you cannot move. If you start to propagate your stress outwards, Remember, it will be the same stress molecule as all the other cells have, so they're stressed too. Everything gets a little more plastic. Everybody, everybody's sort of willing to change, and it doesn't have to be in physical space, right? It could be in physiological states. It could be in transcriptional states, whatever. But that stress is, it makes everything a little more plastic, and then you can go where you need to go, and then the stress will drop again. So it doesn't make anybody more altruistic what it does is everybody acts because they want to reduce their stress, not because they care about you, but it's a very cool mechanism to take um, to 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 scale up goals because it because your local goal becomes everybody's goal because everybody wants you to stop stressing so you can stop stressing them out so so th so that that kind of process and I mean I'm only telling you the part that we I think we have a little bit of insight to there are many things here that we don't understand that kind of process enables cells that care about little tiny things. Okay, to start to uh, have bigger goals, the scaling of goals, whereas before your goals were physically in terms of space and time, very small. Uh, now they're starting to get bigger. And this is how you have goal goals in the anatomical space. So let's make, you know, let's make a limb or whatever. That, that, that could be a story of, of scaling. Okay, so <laughs> like right now, it just seems like, you know, it's 
for you it's like daily work basically and it's uh you deal with this on daily basis but basically what you just said is some really important insight uh starting by okay there is some bioelectrically imprinted information and not you know neuronally binded so it's just by you know and any cell and it makes sense because you know neurons are also you know a cell so it makes sense that other cells they have ion channels they have different kind of channels and they can make gradients as well so why not make bioelectric gradients so this is like the first huge 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 insight and i think you know a, a lot of your work kind of stands on that as well i think and it's so important and what is then i was i was listening to your uh, other uh some other interviews and and work as well and the the thought of uh agent of agency of of uh, individual of self by forgetting who i am and you know kind of mind melting together that's just uh that's really brilliant and i wanted to you know uh there is this thing where the bioelectrically bio imprinted information could could also get decoupled as well And I, I, it just came to my mind because the decouplet, uh, de that decouplet uh, bioelectrical imprinted information uh, is also um, is also similar to what ha happens with cancer. Uh, am I right? Or yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, I just wanted to. Uh, I had a thought where if there is like maybe that's just you know I'm thinking out loud. But you were talking about the stress and the amplifying of stress basically a little bit so what if there is like too much stress and some of the cells kind of decided oh my god this is like too much out of this whole agent like it's too much i'm gonna you know head out and uh, leave this entity there and i'm gonna you know play by myself maybe is that something that we might think about I think that's a very reasonable idea. We are testing exactly that hypothesis. Uh, I don't have the answer for you yet, but uh, I think by the end of the year we should know something about this. I think, I think, yeah, I think that's completely reasonable. I mean, these electrical networks. Let's just take a take a step back here. Um, if we think about all the cool things that brains do, right? So they have memory, they can pursue goals, they have preferences, all these things. Where did all these things come from? So of course they didn't just sort of evolve out of the arise out of nowhere. They they evolved from much more simple versions of the same thing. And as far as we can tell, what basically evolution did was pivot some very early biophysical tricks into different problem spaces. So cells were first solving problems in metabolic space and then a physiological space and then transcriptional space. Uh, and then uh, morphospace and later three-dimensional space when muscles and neurons came aboard, right? So we have to think about, about, about this kind of intelligence long before uh, three-dimensional space. And in fact, evolution discovered that electrical networks are really great for this kind of thing very long time ago. So for example, there's some beautiful work on bacterial biofilms where even, even bacterial biofilms can do some of these brain-like things. So Ion channels were were at the beginning, you know, there's some great uh, neuroscience. Koshland did some great neuroscience in bacteria, looking at how ion channels work. And now the the modern uh, work uh, is 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 really showing that this is this stuff is ancient. So 
what it was used for before was to navigate something called morphous space, which is the space of anatomical configurations, right? What shape should we be? Navigating that space is exactly the same problem as navigating three-dimensional space. There are good regions, there are bad regions, there are barriers. Sometimes you find yourself not where you expected. You have to figure out how to get to where you're going. You have limited uh, energy. You have limited ability to see where what's uh, what's around you. Exactly the same problems. And so, and so biology... Um, uh, you know, it was was using these electrical networks very early, and so and so what happens in uh, in multicellularity is that cells join together into these electrical networks to more intelligently navigate that space. But as you just pointed out, that uh, th that process can break down; it has failure modes. And one failure mode is, and of course, we know that the, that all kinds of stresses can lead to cancerous transformation. One failure mode is when the cells electrically disconnect. And it doesn't have to be caused genetically, although it can be. The first thing that oncogenes tend to do is to un is to electrically uncouple cells. Shutting down gap junctions is one of the first things that that oncogenes tend to do. Um, once the cells uh, electrically disconnect, then as far as they're concerned, the rest of the body is just external environment. So that boundary between me and the outside world can grow and shrink. It can grow during evolution, uh, or and it can shrink during cancer, where. The cancer cells are not any more selfish than the other cells. They just have smaller cells, right? Like everybody's equally selfish in biology. Just sometimes yourself is huge, and sometimes <laughs> yourself is right? sometimes yourself is tiny. And and exactly as you said, those cells might say, "Okay, uh, I'm out of this network." And as soon as you unplug, you no longer see the bigger the bigger goal, which is to build a nice limb or a kidney or a liver or something like that. What you see is your your ancient unicellular goals, which is what? For to become two cells, for every cell to become two cells, and then to go wherever life is good. And that's metastasis, basically. So do I understand it uh, well? In my mind just appeared some uh, hierarchy of identities, uh, from the little cell to the multicellular uh, organism of uh, or, or a multicellular group. And uh, I would like to ask you if I understand it well that What binds these cells together? What binds their intention together so they are able to make a limp is uh, these uh, electric bi bioelectrical networks. And in these bioelectrical networks, there is uh, working some kind of uh, memory. Like, can I, uh, can I can I imagine like that? Oh yes, yes, yes. It it, it is literally and uh, it is it is literally a kind of memory. And I say that because I mean, think about. Um, So, so in all of these things, all all agency claims. Okay, this is this is my perspective, of course. All agency claims, meaning how intelligent is something, what kind of agency it has, are really engineering claims. They're not philosophical claims. They're engineering claims that need to be tested by experiment. So, if I tell you, if I show you a new device, and I say to you, this is a homeostatic device. It's a, it's a, I say it's it it's it's, it's it has the cognitive level of a thermostat. It's able to that. It's able to pursue local goals, and and that's that's what it has, right? What I'm telling you really is it's not it's not a you know kind of a philosophical claim. It's it's engineering. It means that if you, you in order to test this idea, you should say, okay, if you are correct, then three things have to be true. We have to find how the set point is encoded because because the because the because any homeostatic system has to encode a set point. We have to be able to decode that information, meaning read what is the set point. I have to be able to read it. And then we have to be able to change it, rewrite it in a way that does not require physically rewiring the rest of the machine. In order to change it, if you have to rewire the whole machine, 
then you didn't give me a thermostat. You gave me a mechanical clock or something like this, right? That does not rise to the level of a thermostat. <clears throat> well, the magic about a thermostat is that I don't need to know how the rest of it works and I don't need to rewire the whole thing. All I need to know is where is the set point? How do I read the set point? And how do I write the set point? And then something beautiful happens. I, re I reset the goal and the machine takes care of the rest, right? That's an engineering dependency. It means that if I, if I use this in my, uh, you know, in my bigger device, I don't have to micromanage the temperature. I let this thing take care of it, right? That's, th those are, that's what an agency claim is. It's how much, um, how much can you trust something to do in your own absence, basically, right? That's, that's my view of agency. So, so, uh, so why do we, so, so let's, let's test this out. How do we call it a, um, a memory? If, <clears throat> if, um, let's say, uh, so, so here it's good to talk about this model system of flatworms. So a flatworm is a little free living uh, thing called a planarian. It has a head and a tail and, uh, you know, they're very cute. They have a true brain, um, lots of internal uh, tissues and things like that. Um, they have many interesting properties. One of the interesting properties is that you can cut them into pieces and every piece regrows exactly what's missing. Not only does it regrow what's missing, but the piece actually shrinks so that by the time the new head and tail come up, of course, they're small, the whole thing will be proportional, right? So it's very cool. Everything is scaled down and then and, and you get a perfect little worm. So you might ask the question, okay, so you might say, okay, uh, we, here we have two hypotheses. Hypothesis number one is that this is a, a purely emergent mechanical process. So all the cells locally do whatever they do based on local rules, and uh, that's it. Whatever happens, happens. That's, that's the standard null hypothesis. Uh, some years ago, I made a different hypothesis, and I said, okay, I think there's more intelligence here than that. I think it's a homeostatic system, which means that I think this thing actually remembers what a correct planarian is supposed to look like. Now, that's a very, that's a very weird uh, kind of claim because, uh, you know, uh, first, first of all, people like to reserve these kind of terms for complex, you know, and they say, what do you mean it remembers, right? Well, I remember things. I'm like, well, you know, memory, there's all kinds of memories and you're not the only thing that can remember things. Um, and so, and so I said, that's okay. Let's see, let's see if the memory uh, paradigm helps us here at all. So, so, so we started looking and we found out, we found out three things. We found out that a, if you actually look at the bioelectrical pattern, and the way you do that is using these voltage-sensitive fluorescent dyes. So it's a chemical you throw it on, and it basically glows depending on the local voltage concentration. It's a it's a, the whole the whole thing, by the way, is a version of we we I mean we I, I, we steal all kinds of ideas from neuroscience because it's all the same stuff. So so this is basically the notion of neural decoding, right? This idea that they have a neuroscience that if we were to scan the brain and we if we, we understood how to decode it, we would see your memories and your plans and your you know all the mental content that you have. So I said, okay, let's see if we can do this for the rest of the body. Let's see, I'm going to take seriously the idea that the body is a collective intelligence of cells, the same way that we are a collective intelligence of neurons, right? We're bags of walking neurons, basically. So I said, okay, let's take seriously this idea that, that, that there's a collective intelligence that navigates morphospace. Now, in morphospace, there are two-headed worms and one-headed worms and triangular heads and flat heads. There's all this stuff in morphospace. These animals are amazing at navigating that space, right? The way that rats can navigate mazes, these guys navigate morphospace. I said, okay, well, let's take seriously the idea that th this is a collective intelligence that's navigating morphospace. That means that somewhere there's going to be a memory of, of where it's going. Let's see if we can see this memory. So we found out that, yes, in fact, we can see a bioelectric pattern that tells you how many heads a piece is supposed to have. We, uh, then we said, well, now let's rewrite it. And so the way we can rewrite it is you can make a computational model that will say, this is what the pattern of the tissue looks like now. 
which what what channels do I need to open or close to make the pattern be different? Okay, and this is of course is what we're working now for biomedicine. This is this is the big uh, you know kind of the big idea is that if you can predict what what channel opening and closing would get you to the right state, maybe you can address all kinds of defects and things like that. So uh, so so we found some uh, some drugs that open and close ion channels, and we converted that one head uh, kind of pattern to a two head pattern. No genetic change, meaning we don't do no CRISPR, no genomic editing, no transgenes. We don't do anything genetically. But what we found is, is two amazing things. Once you do that, if you injure the animal, it then will consult the pattern, see that, oh, two heads, okay, and it, re and it builds a two-headed worm, right? No problem. The cells don't care because that is their reference. The cells have no idea that anything is wrong because that is what tells them what they're supposed to be in the first place. So that's the first thing. The second thing we found is that that electric circuit is amazing because it has it, it's, it's, it really is a memory because once you convert them to two-headed, it stays two-headed. So you can cut them again and again and again, and they will continue to, that, that circuit, once you've switched it, so, so you can think about it like that. Okay, so, so, so then you ask, so where was the number of heads encoded really, right? Was it encoded in the genome? You might want to say that because uh, all standard worms look the same. So maybe the, so, so it has to be somewhere, it's, right? On the other hand, clearly it's not completely determined by the genome because we just made a line of, of, of uh, two-headed worms that, that has nothing genetically wrong with them. So here's the, here's the I mean, so, so here's the um, kind of uh, analogy that I, that I like. What the genome gives you is a, a piece of hardware, meaning the genome sets all the channels and all the other stuff. It, it, it uh, encodes a piece of hardware that very reliably, when the power is first turned on, when the thing is first alive and the physiology is going, it very reliably settles into a particular state. When you buy a calculator, you, you imagine you, you, get a, you get a parts list that has a bunch of electronic parts, you assemble them according to the, to the schematic, you turn on the power and the little LCD, it says zero every single time. You do it a thousand times, every single time it starts at zero. Okay, great. So it's reliable, it says zero. But then you realize that, hey, wait a minute, this thing is actually a programmable calculator, which means that if I give it some inputs, not rewire it, I can put away my soldering iron, right? I don't need to rewire it, but I can give it some inputs, some brief, you know, taps on the buttons that change the electrical signal just for brief amounts of time. Then I can make the thing instead of zero, I can make it say something else. And in fact, it has a memory and tomorrow it will say something else again. It will, you know, still have the same thing. So, so this is what I think happens. I think evolution builds hardware that is reprogrammable that has a default, a very reliable default state, but that's not the only state. And we have many other interesting experiments with Xenobots and, and other things that can that, that tell you that the default behavior of this thing is not the only behavior. That's just the kind of, you know, the, the default behavior. So is this feature what you call anatomical homeostasis that like every cell has its uh, local position in uh, some some group or some or, or some body and it has some kind of uh, latent memory that gets activated uh, in times of need for example in some in some uh, damage or uh, when it needs to uh, again regenerate something uh, yes, except that I don't think it's a single cell level memory. I don't think the single cell, I mean, single cells also have memory, of course, but I think, but the thing that we're talking about now is a property of the network, not of individual cells. And we've shown the, we have many examples where you can mix things around and it doesn't matter where they go. The whole, the, the collective, it's the collective 
is, is what stores. And, and, and we're pretty used to this, right, with holographic theories of memory, with neural networks, where it's not the individual neurons that know anything, it's the network that knows something. So I think, I think that's, the, you know, bioelectricity is not a single cell the the exciting part of bioelectricity is not the single cell property; it's the network property. Yes, yes, I meant it this way. Like the, the cell uh, perceives the information that flows from the cells around, and uh, just this this flow of information that these cells can uh, perceive their position in the body and their role and what they're supposed to make. As a position and function, I mean, think about think about you know in the the more familiar version in the brain, your brain is an electrical network that makes decisions and then issues commands to muscle cells, right? To implement, to implement, to move you through three-dimensional space. Electrical circuits in the body are exactly the same thing, but they issue commands to other cell types, not just muscle, to move you through anatomical space. They don't move you through three-dimensional space, although there are systems where that's the same, you know, that, that merges kind of tightly, but, but they, they, they're moving you through morphous space. And it's the exact same thing. It's the, it's the, the decision-making in the electrical network, and then uh, the signals are passed down to let's activate some genes, let's, act, let's activate some, some cell migration, differentiation, uh, proliferation, cell death. All of this stuff is downstream of that. Can you tell us more about uh, your experiments? For example, that one that when you created uh, an eye, a third eye on, on the frog. Mm. Uh, so okay, so so there's two. Uh, there there are two different uh, types of experiments. There, the first one has to do with bioelectricity, and it's this idea that uh, we 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 looked at um, the uh, the early frog embryo, and in the early frog embryo, you can see the, an electrical pre-pattern that tells you where all the organs of the face are going to be, right? You can already see them. It, it's, it's cool because it's, it's, a, it's an easy pattern to start with because some of them are incredibly complicated and you don't know what the encoding is. The face one is really nice because you can see it. I mean, it basically looks like a face. So there's not much decoding that needs to happen. It looks like a face. Some of them are really complicated. So, so you can ask the question, and we actually did the eye experiments before we even knew about the face, but, it, but uh, you know, this, I'm telling it in a way that makes the logic clear. You might ask the question, if this bioelectrical state tells the system where to put the eye, what happens if we, if we copy that state somewhere else? Because that's how you want to test it. Because otherwise you might say, well, that pattern doesn't do anything. It's just kind of an epiphenomenon. It's a byproduct, right? So, so now we got to do the functional experiment. So long ago, um, and this is, uh, this is uh, you know, part, kind of part of the story, storytelling, but when, when, we, when we first started my lab. I had, a, I had a graduate student named Ivy Chen. She was actually a dental student. She became a dentist afterwards. She's not a scientist, but, but, she, but she was doing research in, in the lab. And I had asked her to inject some ion channels. Uh, they happen to be CUR 6.1 ion channels. I asked her to inject some RNA for CUR 6.1 in weird places in the early frog embryo. Okay. Uh, now, at the time, this, is, this was considered ridiculous because I, I remember as, as a postdoc, I, I um, I wrote away to all sorts. Of, I, I wrote letters uh, to all sorts of uh, people working on uh, neuroscience and uh, gut physiology and kidney and everything. And I said, "Look, if you've cloned any ion channel genes, send them to me, and and I'm going to try to 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 you know to reproduce them somewhere else." And they said, "Look, this is you're crazy because because voltage is a housekeeping parameter, and if you perturb the voltage, everything will just die, and you will have uninterpretable phenotypes." Okay, that was the standard assumption, and I, I was pretty sure that 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 was that was wrong. So I wanted to test that. So I asked her to to inject these these things, and then and so so we inject them. Then we come back uh, six days later, 
And, uh, and she says to me, and something funny, he goes, she says, um, you know, they're full of these black dots. And I said, black dots. I'm, uh, well, what is that? Let me look. So I get that. I, I sit in front of the microscope together. And I said, oh, my God, look carefully at these black dots. These are eyes. <laughs> and so these tadpoles had eyes all over the place. Because what you what we were doing is reproducing the electrical uh, map that says build an eye here. We were reproducing that on the tail and the gut. I mean, anywhere. And so we found out several important things that day. One is that, in fact, about voltage is not just a housekeeping parameter. It is uh, it is instructive for a very subtle thing for first shape. Number two, it's extremely modular. The architecture of the animal is modular because we didn't have to provide all the information on how to make an eye. I mean, can you imagine how many different cell types and the, or, you know, the positioning, this goes back to your first question of where does the shape come from, right? We didn't have to say, well, here's how you make an eye. First, you need a lens and then a retina. And then we don't have to do any of that. We, we provided a very simple piece of bioelectric information. This is your voltage pattern. So that looks like a very much like a subroutine call, right? When you program, you have a subroutine call, which is a simple trigger that kickstarts a very complex set of, uh, set of actions. Third, uh, the eyes formed and then they stopped. So again, that, that, that module, that subroutine is self-contained. It makes an eye and then that's it. We didn't have to tell it when to stop. It didn't you know, sort of make a gigantic eye that took over the whole embryo. No, it made a normal eye and then it stopped. And then, so, 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 so I, what, that's, that's, I guess, four things. But the fifth thing is that if you look at the developmental biology textbook, it will tell you that only the anterior neurectoderm is competent to make eye. Right, it will tell you that all the other tissues cannot make eye. Why does they say that? Because the PAC6 master eye gene in frog, anyway, only works in front of you know, basically in front of the brain, the anterior neurectoderm. That's wrong. Well, many tissues are competent to make eye, including gut and tail and all kinds of other stuff. But PAC6 doesn't do it because PAC6 is not the top of the hierarchy. The top of the hierarchy is the voltage, and the voltage will, of course, turn on PAC6 in these other organs. We, so we can see it, but that's not enough. That's not by itself. That's not sufficient. But, but, but what it means is that our, our view of the, of the competency of these other cells is limited by the way, the way we ask the question, how you probe it. And that's actually really important. Not until fairly recently did, it, did I appreciate the irony, irony that Nowadays, we're I, I'm I'm studying you know weird unconventional intelligence and telling people that well you can't uh, guess correctly the intelligence if you don't ask it in the right way. But we were already seeing this in 2001. We were already seeing that really that right that that that, that that's that that's the fact. Uh, and the other thing we learned, which was also su super cool, is this: imagine that when you inject the RNA into the embryo you put in a lineage tracer. So you can see every cell that gets your RNA becomes blue with beta-galactosidase. Beta so you can tell which cells got your RNA. So what we saw was this, was this very interesting thing where if you have, a, a, for example, a lens sitting in the tail of a tadpole somewhere, you take a section through it and you look, only half of it is blue. So what that means is that if we don't, get, if we don't convert enough cells to do this, the cells that are making a lens they will recruit their neighbors. They know there's not enough of them to make a good lens. They will recruit a bunch of neighbors that themselves did, were not affected by us at all and say, hey, you're part of this project now. You need to make this lens. Mm -hmm. So there's two levels of instruction, right? We instruct the cells, hey, make a lens right here, but I'm not going to tell you how to do that. In fact, I'm not even going to affect enough cells. And those cells say, okay, well, I'm going to instruct my neighbors and then we're going to build this thing, right? So several, several layers of instruction. So this was, so, so, that's, so that's one story of the eye. There's another eye story, which is not bioelectric. That story is that Doug Blackiston, uh, who was at the time a postdoc in my group now, he's a staff scientist. He, um, he 
took uh, eye primordia cells, so the cells that are going to later become eye, and he stuck them on the back of a tadpole, they of a frog embryo. They these cells, not all, first of all. So so here's the amazing things about that. First, they still make a great eye, even though they're in a completely bizarre environment. So instead of being near the brain, they're sitting in the middle of muscle. No problem. They make a, they make an eye. Number two, they have an optic nerve that comes out. Where does this optic nerve go? It doesn't go to the brain. It's it it sometimes it goes nowhere. Sometimes it goes to the spinal cord. Okay, so it synapses onto the spinal cord. Number three, those animals can see perfectly well out of those eyes <laughs> because we tested them. This is the craziest part. We tested them in this uh, visual learning assay. So we had this like bl moving blue light, and we wanted them um, uh, to move away from the from the blue light, right? And uh, and they do. They can see perfectly well if they don't have any other eyes but an eye on their backs. They can see. And so and so think about this, right? This this brain that evolved for millions of years to expect visual input from specific location. Now you suddenly you have this weird patch of itchy tissue on your back that's providing some sort of electrical tingling up your spinal cord. Your brain could say, oh yeah, that's visual data. No problem. I can work with that. And, uh, and it's fine. Right. This has this has massive implications for evolution. Remember at the beginning, I said that that middle layer has competent, has intelligence that helps evolution. And think, think about this. Imagine you have a mutation. Like all, like all mutations, it has multiple consequences. One mutation is that your eye ends up on your back. Okay. The second, but it has other effects that might be good. If a, if a, right, if a creature was hardwired, this eye on your back, you wouldn't be able to see. Your fitness is zero. You're dead. That's it. And so evolution never experiences the benefits of this other. Uh, it never explores the benefits of the mutation. Whereas here, for, for in this example and other examples, if your eye is on the back. Eh, I can still see it's fine. So now your fitness is not zero. Now you get to explore. Well, what else did we? What else do we have that might be good? So it turns that competency turns negative mutations, which are most of them, right? Deleterious mutations. It turns many of them into neutral mutations because eh, we can live with that. The, the, the developmental process can can still they can still get their job done. You see, this is the the goal directedness of it. The eye, even though even though its environment has changed and the genes you know may have changed, it 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 can still get its job done. And that means that evolution now has a much nicer space to search because, because um, those competencies help smooth the evolutionary landscape. Mm -hmm. So those are, those are our two eye stories. Uh, before we get to another experiment, I just wanted to kind of reflect and maybe sum up for me, for the listeners, for us in this conversation. There are many levels to this, and we've kind of now went through in our minds emergent properties that weren't encoded before as you said with the with the marbles you know coming down and stuff like that that this happens in our biology in our organism and stuff like that and different kind of levels of emergence kind of happen and so right now it if i understand it correctly right now we can think of these different levels and kind of choose the level where it's the best for us uh, like Where is the best to act on our intention? Basically, if I if I want to have an eye on the back, do I, as you said, do I, you know, do the molecular things or do I uh, imprint the bioelectric pat pattern? So we found out. You found out that okay, it's better way to imprint the bio bioelectric pattern. So right now it's such a interesting field because there are some. I was wondering about a question if if um, you can basically learn those goals throughout evolution. So in evolution, you have this random process that ends up in some form of organism. Does it 
learn to have a goal basically is like is like some intentionality or like theological side of things because uh, you've said in interview with Chonkerol that the biologists and biologists like kind of theophobic but there there we can see that there are some goal and goal directedness and it's on many levels not only on the basic level of genes but okay there is this goal directedness developed on the level that emerged out of you know so that's like so interesting for me how do you think about that yeah 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 uh, you said many interesting things here um let's let's uh, kind of for a bigger context um the the reason for the teleophobia is that at the beginning of of science basically there were only two options you were either uh very smart like a human or you were very stupid like a rock those were your two options right there was there was true intelligence and then there was mechanics made clocks and you know things like that when you have those two options and you want to do science of course you know it it forces a binarization where you start to look at everything as a clock because because no one knew how to analyze things that were smart like humans so you said fine everything we're going to pretend everything is a clock and we're going to just find out how the hardware works i i but but the thing is now now it's time to to realize that since the 40s the 1940s we've had a science of machines with goals cybernetics control theory okay so it's no longer magic we don't need we, there's nothing theological here there's nothing magical here we we don't need any of that what we have now is a good science that tells us it's a continuum it's not just dumb like rocks and smart like humans there are uh, it's a it's a it's a whole continuum along the way and that means that when you analyze your system you don't have to pick one or the other you can make engineering claims about where you think it is and then we will test those theories and either we will find out that oh you overestimated and it's not really that smart or you underestimated and it's much smarter than you thought but these are all now uh, experimental questions the thing that drives me crazy is that people will often vo- um, uh, vocalize uh, their their feelings about oh uh, this can't be this and this can't be that I, these are not uh, philosophical questions these are these should be empirical questions and so So you asked the most you 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 got right on onto the most important thing which is what is the best level of control because because someone might say and people have said to me is oh I see uh because you are showing how the bioelectrical decision propagates down to the gene expression level right so I mean of course it does they say oh well it's just chemistry and physics well what did you think it was going to be of course it's chemistry and physics but <laughs> but right underneath everything is chemistry and physics obviously <laughs> but you are making a very specific claim if you if you try to manipulate down at the lowest level let's find out let's find out who has the better control you can try to control 10000 genes every couple of minutes you know and and control it that way or you can go upstream and try to change the 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 decision making of the system okay we've now shown many examples where where the latter is is much much better because and we already know right we already know that uh when i have the slide that i always show in talks of what computer programming looked like in the 50s right what do you do you sit there plugging you know plugging wires back and forth okay that worked does does anybody want to uh, program that way nowadays right for most things i mean it's it's so difficult to program at the hardware level it's just really hard so neuroscience is kind of uh, on board with these multiple levels because you know that if you have a problem with maybe it's a molecular problem so maybe somebody's missing a neurotransmitter fine 
or maybe it's a it's a sort of behavioral problem. So somebody might need the behavioral modification therapy or something like that, or maybe it's a psychological issue, or maybe someone has read too much uh, existentialism and now <laughs> is depressed. You know, that's not really a solvable by 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 neurotransmitter manipulation, right? That's a that, that's a that's a completely different thing. So so we kind of uh, know that there are these different levels, and and things are handled at the should be handled at the appropriate level. So we've made this. So we made this argument that that a lot of interesting uh, 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 regenerative medicine is only going to be achievable when we, are, uh, when we are no longer afraid to deal with the system at higher levels. Maybe we can train tissues. Maybe we can talk about um, uh, risk assessment by tissues. Uh, a lot of the things that are happening, you know, active inference, perceptual um, control theory, a lot of the things that are happening in neuroscience are directly applicable to, uh, to other cells that are not brains. And they require us to understand many levels, not just the molecular level, maybe not even the bioelectric level. At some point, you know, we can train, right? Imagine humans have been training animals for thousands of years, knowing zero neuroscience, right? You don't need to know what's, be, what's inside the, the brain, as long as you understand that, hey, the system can learn, and I know what the currency of motivation is, meaning rewards and punishments. Then that's it. It doesn't matter what's really in there. So, so maybe at some point for some things, we can even go beyond and say, I don't know what the correct bioelectrical state is, but I'm going to train these cells for a specific outcome. Uh, can you train a genetic uh, genetic pathway or, or something like that? Because I think you've talked about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, and we're not we're not the first uh, lab to to show that. Uh, Richard Watson's group and a couple of others shown something similar. Uh, this is this is a good example of my point that you can't just have feelings about these things. You have to do experiments. So, for example, if I show you a gene regulatory network, right? You know, so it's a bunch of uh, transcription. It's, it's a bunch of genes, and they all transcriptionally regulate each other up or down. You look at this thing and you say, wow, this is um, the paradigm of, de of genetic determinism. There's no, there's no magic here. There's no indeterminism here. Uh, it's, I can see exactly how this works. It's just, it's, just a, it's just physics, right? It's just a piece of physics. Okay, uh, but nevertheless, uh, the question might become, well, what cognitive level does it have? If you, if you assume from the beginning that it has zero, meaning that the only way I can control this is I can change the trans uh, the, the promoter so that the, I can uh, delete nodes, I can add nodes, physical rewiring. You can do certain things. So we and, and others, as I say, have done something like this. We took the, made the assumption that actually, let's find out, right? Let's find out. And so we took this, the, with this, the models of these G, of, of gene regulatory networks, and we pretended they were neural networks and we tried to train them. And what that means is that you pick some nodes, you pick one gene as your uh, conditioned stimulus, one gene as your unconditioned stimulus, one other gene as a, as a response. And you simply ask, does the history of tweaking, meaning up or down regulating these inputs, change the way it reacts to those inputs later on? I mean, that's learning, right? That's the, we found, so in our work, I'll just to, to talk about to talk about ours, um, and this is uh, Surama Biswas was the postdoc who did this. Uh, she found six different types of memory, including Pavlovian conditioning. So like, uh, you know, uh, Pavlov's dog, right? With the, so, so, so she found that biological networks can have many types of memory like this. Control random networks, right? So you just, just you know, design random networks. They don't tend to have this property, which suggests that evolution actually likes this. For whatever reason, evolution actually favors uh, this property of being able, to, being able to learn. And it has, it has uh, amazing implications for, uh, for biomedicine. Because it means imagine, right? Imagine the, the thing. The thing about the Pavlovian conditioning. Imagine you have a drug that is very powerful. It works very well in the petri dish, but you can't use it in humans. It's too strong. So now, if you're 
disease circuit has this associative learning property, it means that maybe you can give that drug together with a completely neutral drug, which we call we called it in the in the in the review we called it a um a molecular placebo. You, you you take another drug that doesn't do anything and you pair them together and you just give them together. If the system learns to associate them, then maybe after a few presentations, now you can just use the the, the neutral one and you don't need the you know you don't need the really strong one, right? So and then maybe at some point it will give up the way the dog you know if you keep ringing the bell the dog will give up eventually. So maybe then you have to retrain you know I don't know but 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 you get the idea. So 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 this this is this is just a good example that you can't assume about these things. You have to you have to make hypotheses about cognitive level and then you have to test them. I really like uh, this concept of both ways of control. That the first way is uh, bottom up. That from genes that uh, there are emerges uh, proteins and our other emergent structures and the other way around is uh, from uh, top down that these electrical patterns uh, can influence the genetical level and i would like to ask you like uh, from your experiment with the eye it, is it possible uh, to get this eye passed to another generation that it's like incorporated in the genome uh yeah uh we don't have any evidence that this uh, feeds back into the genome so as far well, now we haven't done the experiment but but i don't have any reason to believe that the next generation of frogs would have this eye however um in the case of the planarian it's a little more subtle because planaria normally reproduce by tearing themselves in half and then regenerating and now you have two worms When that happens, a two-headed planarian does give rise to another two-headed planarian. So it's not the same as sperm and egg reproduction. It's not classic uh, Lamarckia, Lamarckism because you are not uh, changing the hereditary material. But let's be careful. You're not changing the DNA, but DNA is not the only hereditary material. And in, in planaria, the bioelectric circuit is also a a hereditary material. In fact, there's others. So, so with Chris Fields, we wrote a something that show that talked about the fact that when you look at you, you know, look at look at any organism and look at the history, all of its parents, what molecules are directly conserved through that whole lineage? Well, certainly the DNA. That's the whole point, right? The the genome is passed on. But there's two other things that are passed on. One is the cytoskeleton. Every cell's cytoskeleton is directly templated off of the previous cytoskeleton, right? And it's also the cell membrane because the cell membrane also is is made. So so and and also there are bioelectric circuits. Who knows what else, right? There may be nine other you know media that are that we just don't know about yet. I don't know, but 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 at least in planaria, you can take advantage of this additional hereditary uh, medium that's not genetic. Do do vertebrates have that? I don't know. Um, there's some nice work from um, Oded Rakhavi in uh, C. Elegans, where he he studies uh, transgenerational inheritance, and so there are certainly are mechanisms for passing things back into the genome. Whether the bioelectrics does this or not, I I don't know. We were talking um, about different levels of emergence, basically, but uh, and also the phenomenal work of uh, six types of learning of these genetic networks basically and pathways and stuff like that so i wanted to explore a bit more of these um, you know higher levels of maybe cognition and get to minds because that's also another emergent level and we can think of okay so <laughs> right now i could tweak your brain and you would get in very very complicated way the same information maybe as I'm speaking to you right now, but it's much more simple for simpler for me to speak these words and move in this level of 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 cognition basically. Uh and I was wondering, you know, 
this gets us to there are many many weird kind of ideas how to get into with your intention how it affects your body basically and it's also placebo as well we've talked talked about it but this is so interesting because right now we can kind of test it uh test it scientifically and test uh how how could placebo work and how what how strong the intention of this level where we kind of move together how strong it is and how it actually affects the body and and the whole organism and it, it does right because like you have these uh like you can think about something i don't know stressful and suddenly you know your your body is secreting stress hormones and wow it affects things affects the cells and the cells are connected and it affects the whole organism so how do you think about our intentionality power of our intention and how it affects the body and and yeah, yeah. Um, well, a couple of things. Uh, first, you know, if I were to tell you that you can voluntarily change the voltage potential of cells in your body, 30% of the cells in your body, you could voluntarily change the voltage potential. You might say, well, that, you're, you're crazy. How am I going to change voltage potential in my cells? But, in, but when you're lying down in the morning and you decide to stand up, guess what you're doing, right? You're changing the bioelectric state of your muscles. So, so we already know that your intention can absolutely change the electrical state of your cells. And, and of course, the chemical and many others, as you point out. So, so pe- lots of people study the, um, uh, the interface, the immune, uh, the immune system interface to, to the body, uh, many, many other things. People have found uh, effects on, on stem cells from, from meditation and certain kinds of practices. So, so of, of course, the, the, link, uh, the link is, is, is strong. Um, the thing that the thing that I would say is that I I because because of this continuum, right? The fact that we were all one cell at one point in your life, you were one cell. Nine months and some years later, you can say I am. You know, people you you get a human who will say things like I am not a machine. I am more than physics. Well, <laughs> you used to be a you used to be a quiescent oocyte, is what you used to be, and and slowly. Right, and and the key the key is developmental biology does not offer any particular point where some kind of lightning flash comes and ah now you have a mind before that you were just chemistry right okay that doesn't happen so 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 this thing is completely slow very you know sort of step by step gradual so for me this means that if if I I like to think backwards a lot of people say paramecium has a mind come on single cells don't have minds I like to work it backwards if we can agree that we have minds then you owe a story about where they came from. And that story cannot be, well, on day 59, you know, this happened. There's, <laughs> that's, that's ridiculous. And so, so then the story has to go all the way back. And so once you have that, you can, you can say that uh, I, think, I think we can conclude a couple of things. One is that minds change. Obviously, the mind of a cell is not the mind that we have now. And there are many things in between. And there are many alien kinds of minds that we make with AI and with various other things. And who knows what in the universe, who knows what else is, is out there. Uh, they change. That's A. And B, um, we are, I think, we are very bad at recognizing unconventional intelligence. I'll just give you a simple example. We are born with our sense organs looking out into the three-dimensional world where medium-sized objects move around at medium speeds. And that is our training set for for. For, for a recognizing intelligence. So when you see your cat or your neighbor or a bird or something else doing something interesting, you say, oh, look at this, that's, that's intelligence. I see that, that you, know, I hid the, you know, I hid the reward from here to there and he still figured out how to get it. Or you know, he made the little, you know, the crows make the little tools to open the locks and do all this stuff. I recognize that as intelligence. Imagine if you were 
born with a uh, an internal sense of your body chemistry. So a multidimensional sense of all the different chemicals in your blood. And you knew exactly what your liver and your pancreas were doing every moment of the day to, to adjust all of that stuff. In that case, you would understand that there is such a thing as physiological space. You would understand what intelligence looks like in physiological space. You would say, oh, my liver is really intelligent uh, <laughs> because it's able to do all these amazing things despite different perturbations. You would recognize that implants, right, like, like um, smart um, insulin pumps and pacemakers and things like that, are robots that work in physiological space. Right now, when I say robot, you imagine you know the 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 Mars rover that drives around in the, or or a self-driving car. Yeah, that's great. That's a robot in three-dimensional space. We have robots in physiological space, right? Your your insulin pump that measures a bunch of stuff and gives you little puffs of of insulin at just the right time. It's navigating physiological space, right? But we don't think about it that way, right? Because because we are uh, just uh, uh, you know sort of blind to all that stuff because of our training set. So I think I think that we need to understand that minds are incredibly diverse. Minds come with all kinds of different bodies that we're not used to, and, and many more will come. I mean, in your lifetime, you're going to see creatures that uh, just, you know, are completely alien to us, and uh, synthetic and chimeric and cyborg and all that. And and uh, minds solve problems in in novel spaces. It's not all about movement, and it's not all about three dimensional space. There are there's intelligences all around us that are very hard to to see. This brings a lot of uh, ethical questions about how we are moving through 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 the world. What's what's your point? What's your view uh, at at the concept of the self, uh, at the identity? Because we are talking about intelligence uh, at many layers. So what's your point on identity? Uh, yeah, there are many things can be said. It's a complex area, of course. Um, I, I, one, one thing that I have done is to try to come up with a framework where highly diverse intelligences could all be um, compared and recognized on the same in the same space. So, so what I wanted to do, and this was um, this was a challenge put to us a few years ago at a meeting in them of the uh, Templeton Foundation, they had asked us to come up with a framework to be able to compare directly all kinds of unconventional intelligences, you know, and so and so some people think, you know, octopus, uh, you know, something or insects or something like that. I, I want to go really broad. I want to be able to think about uh, swarms. I want to think about alien life forms. I want to think about AI. I want to think about synthetic and chimeric intelligences, other spaces, like really broad. And so, so what is a self, right? What what is? How do you? Uh, how 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 can you compare all these different different things? I think that uh, cybernetics got it right with a focus on goals. So 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 here's here's what I think a self is. I think a self is a collection of parts that are able to work together towards system level goals. The goals that belong to that that collection, not to the individual pieces. Now, one thing we can do is we can map out the size of your goals. So we can, in whatever 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 those goals might be, how about the size of them? So if you are, so let's let's think of some examples. If you tell me that um, my biggest goal, the biggest thing I can work, and remember what a goal is. A goal is some state that you can uh, exert energy to reach that state. That's a goal. So if you tell me that the biggest goal you can possibly think about is the local sucrose concentration, then I'm going to guess you're a bacterium of some sort, and that is your level, okay? If you tell me that uh, you can have goals that reach forward a few hours, and in terms of space, 
you can handle things that go on a few, you know, a few hundred feet in diameter, but that's about it. I'm going to say, well, maybe, maybe you're about the level of a dog, meaning that your dog has certainly some memory going backwards, certainly some predictive capacity going forwards. It understands some amount of space, but you can never get your, your goal, your dog to work towards a goal that's three months from now in the next city over. Impossible, right? They, they just can't handle that size of that. Now, now, why do I say this, right? Somebody, if somebody, somebody could prove me wrong and, and train their dog to, you know, to work towards things that are months away, I made this part, you know, that's great. Then I'll change my example. <laughs> but, but you understand these are empirical claims that there are minds that, that okay, uh, that, that, that have uh, those kind of limitations. Then you might tell me that, well, uh, I have, I, I, have a goal uh, that has to do with the um, uh, the financial markets of the next hundred years, or you might tell me that uh, wow, I'm really I'm really sad that the sun is going to burn out, uh, you know, billions of years from now. Okay, then I'm going to say you're, you're at least a human because because your goal your goal in, and so I call this the cognitive light cone. It's sort of the boundary. It's the size of the kinds of things you can have as goals, not 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 the distance you can sense. Right. Because, for example, the tele, you know, the James Webb telescope has a massive distance of sensing. But that's not the point. The point isn't about sensing. The point is about goal directedness. So so you could be a human. But then you might say to me, you know, uh, I, I, I really uh, I, I really I, I feel um, I feel a certain way when something happens to to a, a, a thousand people. And when the same thing happens to a million people, I'm not able to be a thousand times more more upset. I'm just not I don't have that linear range. I just can't do it. And then we can start to think about, okay, humans are probably not the top of the food chain. At some point, there will be a massive intelligence that can literally, in the linear range, care about an enormous amount of stuff that we can't even wrap our heads around, right, in terms of be being a goal, right? So for somebody like, now, 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 there are, of course, traditions that talk about this, right? There are traditions that talk about, you know, some sort of Buddha nature that where, some, where, where something has evolved to the point where they can literally care about all the sentient, sentient creatures on, on Earth, right? Maybe that's possible. I have no idea if it's possible. But you can think about, you know, that humans are not the top of this, this food chain. So, so for me, in terms of... Um, what a self is a self is a temporary uh, a, a temporary bundle of of activities that works towards specific goals so selves have goals they have preferences they have some degree of uh, competency in navigating various spaces maybe very high maybe low um, so so those are those are selves and and of course selves are nested so in our body so we are a self we have many selves inside of us most of which are nonverbal Right, not all of them, but but most of them are nonverbal, and we are also part of probably the larger selves that are you know social structures or who knows what who knows what what what's above us. Um, and so yeah, that, anyway, that's 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 my talk on the selves. That's uh, uh, yeah, that's um, so interesting. I, are you familiar with uh, philosopher Henri Bergson? Uh, he's yeah, so. His idea, basically, of, of uh, levels of consciousness was to do something with indeterminism. And it's so interesting. And now, you know, you have a, you, you just said, okay, my goal is to get this sucrose. Okay, it's probably a bacterium. But you can create a space between the stimuli or the goal and the many ways that can achieve that goal. And that's basically the inter, inter indeterminism and that's basically the level of the self and maybe level of consciousness that contains that self as well and i was just interested in the scaling of the goals i was thinking one day okay what does how am i like how 
are humans motivated? Maybe a different perspective on that. And I was thinking, okay, so let's stretch out those homeostatic goals that we have, you know, and the goals of, you know, the evolution has. And if you stretch them out, you you, you can maybe like, okay, why am I sitting in this room right now? Why was this building built and stuff like that? And th- this is basically this just stretched out basic homeostatic loop of my organism or of, you know, this swarm of humans to get to a certain temperature and this is for me so interesting like scaling of goals and right now we are you know in the times of internet and we are connecting right here right now and it's just um we think maybe it's this sci-fi that we're gonna get connected and have you know or connected there there is going to be some higher level intelligence or self or something like that but i think that as you've said, we don't have insight into different level of minds or, or different, you know, different minds altogether. So maybe there is already something like that, you know, this like kind of, this kind of hive mind, but, you know, not really this like, like woo perspective, but more like realistic perspective. What's happening right now? It's, it feels like it's actually here already a little bit. So yeah, there was just some thoughts on, on that. Yeah, I, I think I no, I think that's very important because we we're we're very bad at um, recognizing ourselves at lower levels. We're even worse at recognizing them at higher levels. We don't have really any tools. So 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 one can ask this question: If if you were part of a larger mind, could you tell? First of all, could you tell? Could you gather evidence that you were part of a larger cognitive system? And B. Could you, if if you could, could you gain some understanding of what the goals of that system were, right? Which is very important because as humans, if we're building some kind of massive uh, political, economic structure, whatever, uh, what are the goals of that structure, right? Well, we, this happens all the time. We do Internet of Things, we do swarm robotics, and then you say, uh, can uh, okay, we have any idea what this thing's going to want to do when when well, you know when it when it boots up, right? So so the thing is that. I have a feeling, and I don't know this for a fact, but my feeling is that probably with some version of Gödel's theorem tells you that you are never going to really understand what the higher level is doing. Uh, very much like you know, when you go to work and you you know you step or don't step on some ant on your way to a meeting, the ant has absolutely no no capacity to understand the con the context of what it just participated in. You know why this is happening, right? So so it's entirely possible that we are the the same, right? And if, and people have said that too. You know why ah, the universe works in mysterious you know ways, the bigger patterns, right? Um, but maybe it's possible, and I don't know, but but maybe it's possible with some kind of math or you know causal information theory or something to start to gain evidence for or against the idea that we are part of something larger. And just to give you an example, I, I spent a lot of time in the last few months thinking about what it would be like to be a neuron or a subset of neurons inside a large neural network that's being trained. And you could imagine two ways. Imagine this conversation between like two two neighboring uh, subnets. One says, "Oh look, uh, we live in a cold mechanical universe. Doesn't care what we do. Uh, I can learn. You know, I can learn about things. And uh, and we live in a in a we are an insignificant speck in this in this giant universe that doesn't care about anything. There are no larger minds. We are the only thing. You recognize like this is you recognize this this uh, this story. This is the t- this is the standard uh, scientific story of today, right? We live in this you know uh, mechanical cosmos that doesn't care what we do. The other the other the neighbor says, 
I, you know, I'm not so sure. I, I've been I've been tracking things here, and I can tell you that every time I do certain things, life is good. But when I do other things, this 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 massive wave of punishment, right? This back propagation wave comes and smacks me, and 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 forcibly changes my voltage and does all this other stuff. And I'm starting to think that the universe, that my you, that our universe actually does care what we do, and in particular. For some reason, right? You know this. Have you seen them um, Google Deep Dream? Have you seen these things? It's like it makes it makes it, and all these pictures have dogs in them because they're always writing. And the dogs, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and so I can imagine, right? So this is total fantasy, of course, but you get you get you get the idea. I, I can imagine that this one says, "Look, I, I don't know. I I cannot comprehend uh, the 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 thought of our universe, but I think it likes dogs." Because every <laughs> because because every time I find an eye, like every time I output this dog eye, life is good, and otherwise I get you know corrected or something like this, right? And and so you could easily imagine, right? The, in in that universe, the the um, uh, the the one that thinks that it lives in a mindless world is wrong. It's it's factually wrong. The right the question. So now the question is for us. The question is. What is the right view? I mean, there are certainly people who feel that there are patterns to life, and that they can you know. I mean, I who 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 knows, right? I don't. Nobody knows. But 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 I don't think it's crazy to ask the following question. This this is the distinction that I think is really important. Are you learning or are you being trained? What's the difference? The difference is, <laughs> in both in in both cases, right? In both cases, you are engaging in something that is designed to change your own mind. When you are learning, you pick up a book and learn stuff with the with the inherent uh, purpose of changing your own psychology. And and by the way, we are complex enough that we are even subject to there's this idea of the thought that breaks the thinker, right? You can imagine that if you're like really a kind of a deep thinker, you might come across a piece of literature or something that just screws you up completely and spirals you into some sort of depression and whatever, right? But but we are we we know that we can learn and we can change our mind. But when we do that, we assume that we are the only agent in that interaction. So there's me, the agent, and then there's the outside world, and the outside world has zero agency, and I'm the boss. I do what I want. I can learn or I can not learn, whatever. The, or I am provided with inputs, and I am changed the way that I would look. But I don't know that the outside world has zero agency. You know, that's a, that's an assumption. We, we don't actually know that. And under certain circumstances, you would be wrong to assume that. If you're a neuron in a neural network, you'd be wrong to assume that. So I don't know. I'm not claiming. I'm, I'm making no claims whatsoever about anything like that, but I'm just saying that I think I, I don't think it's a crazy question at all to try to develop some sort of uh, mathematical formalism to try to gain evidence for being part of a larger system, even knowing that you will never understand the whole goal. You don't know what space it works in, but maybe you can see your option space being deformed in some way that uh, is that is consistent with with a not a zero agency on the other end. So, recommend. Uh, you just put a framework to a lot of you know kind of these i don't know it feels like you are part of the universe you are not separated from it and it, there is something maybe something maybe mysterious and you you know you have subjective experience and uh whenever someone asks me if i believe in something you know i i usually say i believe literally i believe in something i can't really I believe there is like something else that I can actually perceive because I know I can perceive only, you know, just these little things. And I think this is such a nice logical logical framework to ask ourselves whatever this mysterious thing might be and only, you know, only the thoughts that you 
put out there is so important because many many people are on in in one camp on one extreme and they say ah definitely there's i don't know from pan panpsychism from eastern philosophical perspective you know we are this one hive mind one consciousness consciousness and or like transmit we are you know transmitters or something like that and now you are putting frame to it and kind of asking real question and asking real possibility of kind of you know of testing it maybe mathematically some sometime in the future or something and you are kind of okay so you're not on this extreme on not on this other extreme but you are in the middle and it feels like you're trying to not to have an agency uh in in this or or something because yes that's the how it's supposed to be done and not wish something is like that or like that because that's actually going to affect the the stuff that you do and that you are going to uh, you know explore and stuff uh, or discover so this for me is really interesting way to putting to to put these things together and and think about it and kind of the extreme the they extremize the world that we live in because there is a lot of extremes and when we ha can have even as you know scientists and 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 researchers and everyone when they can have this kind of um uh you know uh talk or something i th or discussion i think it's so important because otherwise we can't you know we can't move forward so i really i'm grant grateful for what you do and that, that you put that you are that you are putting these frameworks uh, out here uh, out there so yeah thank you for that well thank you yeah thank you uh, i i do think it's important to two two things one is to as as treat as many things as possible as empirical questions right once you say i believe whatever it, uh, it, it closes off uh, the ability to test it, first of all. So we should always be working to come up with some, some way of making this practical and testable. And that's A. And B, we should realize that whatever your framework is, it, it limits and enables different next steps. So it constrains, you know, if you, if, you never, if you can never believe philosophically that gene regulatory networks could have non-zero agency, you will never do the experiment that we did. Right, planar you know, planaria have been um, uh, have been studied since uh, 1903, I believe. Uh, right, you know, and 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 two-headed animals have been produced right at the beginning of the last century. No one ever thought to cut to recut them. <laughs> to my knowledge, no one ever recut them. Why? Because it was perfectly obvious that that well, genetically they're unchanged, and when you cut off that second head, well, of course they're going to go back to normal. What else could it be? And so, so there are so many experiments like this that we've done because. Uh, each lens has things that it enables and other things that it it does not let you do. And 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 as much of this as possible. And the and the biggest one of all is look. There's a as scientists, there's one thing that we all take on faith. All science begins with an act of faith, which is basically this idea that the world is understandable, right? That there's a pattern behind it, and that what we are doing is discovering a pattern. Nobody, no no scientist can go to work saying. I'm going to find a bunch of stuff today, but tomorrow it'll probably all be different. That's great. And like, nobody believes that, but you wouldn't do, you couldn't do science if you were some kind of, you know, if, if Hume was right and we were living in a, a random, uh, you know, just collection of randomness that has pockets of, 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 of just by accident, things look like they make sense kind, kind of in pockets. If you had that view, you would never be able to do science. Science is predicated on, on a complete leap of faith that has no, no empirical justification that, that behind all of this stuff, there is some kind of truth that we are getting to. So, so I think, you know, I think we need to be honest with ourselves that, that we all start uh, in, this, in this field anyway. We all start with a bit of faith and then, and then you move as much as you can to experiment. Thank you for that. Uh, Michael, what is your focus right now? 
Oh boy, uh, that's uh, that's well. Uh, yeah, and I apologize. I have about a minute, and then and then I have to run. But yeah, um, yeah of course. Uh, we, you know, we do a lot of things in our lab. I would say the focus of the whole group is to understand different kinds of minds in various embodiments. But that means regenerative medicine. It means uh, um, applications in birth defects. It means uh, cancer. We do some uh, synthetic uh, biology, synthetic morphology to make artificial new um, proto-organisms. We do some artificial intelligence. We do a lot of different things. All of them are around this this kind of question. Yeah. Uh, Michael, I I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you so much. I think there is like questions of consciousness and regenerative regeneration of limbs and stuff like that. Uh, where do people find you? Uh, you know, leave us some links or I think you're part of some company as well that is trying to research, I think, regenerating limbs as well. So could you could you link that? Uh, everything is going to be in the description. And Michael, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate the conversation. Um, I will I will email you a bunch of links. Yeah, there's a couple of spin-off companies. Um, all our stuff is on my website that you can yes. see all that. So yeah, thank you so much. And I'm happy to talk to you guys anytime. We can always do cool. it again. Cool. Nice. Thank you very much. Right. Bye. Bye. Thank Have you so a nice much. day. Bye. Bye-bye.